0: Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 47. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we speak with Huxley Barbie, security evangelist at Run Zero and organizer of B-Sides NYC. Thanks for being with us on the show today, Huxley.
1: Thank you for having me, Christopher. I'm a huge fan of Lima Charlie.
0: To kick things off, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about
1: what you do? Oh, well, I don't know if there's anything that's really that interesting there. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a guy, just another guy. I have a wife. I have two kids. I've had many, many roles in security over the last 25 years or so. But perhaps most interesting for the audience is that I'm the security evangelist at RunZero, and I'm also the organizer for B-Sides NYC. Very cool. It sounds like you have a busy schedule.
0: Yeah. RunZero bills itself as a comprehensive cyber asset management solution with the fastest and easiest way to full asset inventory. Can you tell us a little bit about what the problem is that RunZero solves and how you go about doing that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So let's go back 20 years or so. Back then, the security team, if there was a security team, all they really had to worry about was the devices, the assets that are in the office. You knew what you had, for the most part, and even if you didn't, you had a finite number of choke points around the perimeter of the network, and you just protected the edge, and then you're good to go. Now, these days, that boundary of the network is, is changed, along with a proliferation of devices. So... Uh, There there are multiple drivers for this over the last 20 years. First and foremost, remote work. There was a work-from-home trend even before the pandemic, but the pandemic really compounded that. And so you now have these devices that are not in the office, but in various remote employees' homes or in coffee shops. There's also been the rise of the cloud in the last 10, 15 years. And so security teams have to not just protect the stuff that's in the office, but also in the cloud. Also around 2005, five or so starting around then you started seeing more and more ot networks getting connected to the IT network whereas these used to be air gapped they're no longer and and so there's all those devices now that security teams have to protect also there's more mergers and acquisitions there have been in the past and 20 years ago nobody was bringing their own devices into the network but now people bring everything yes. into the network and if you think about universities it's not just phones that they're bringing in there's like their their game consoles and 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 lava lamps and and who knows what else is on the network, which which also brings us to the sixth one, which is the rise of IoT, right? You know, 20 years ago, we didn't have smart speakers, smart anything. And now we have home building automation, as well as numerous other IoT devices that are just like littered throughout the environment. so
0: I, I, I just read a paper about an attack vector that started with a vacuum cleaner. I did not realize vacuum cleaners are now network-enabled.
1: <laughs> there was a great talk at the last DEF CON, I think it was last, last or the, maybe the one previous to that, where some guy basically hacked all the Roombas. And <laughs> th- my biggest takeaway from that was, if you buy a Roomba off of Facebook Marketplace or something, make sure you wipe the the firmware because somebody could have left the trojan on there and some of these roombas I think now have little cameras too oh, wow. so it's it's not just mapping out your home anymore but like they can also also see stuff in your home so yeah pretty much everything now is is going to kill you or uh, going to attack you or is a new new attack vector into your home and and into your business so anyway that's that's what's been happening over the last twenty years in terms of devices that security teams have to protect, and it's no longer something that can be solved simply by maintaining a spreadsheet or something along those lines. You actually really do need a full-on, uh, what we call a cyber asset management solution to help you make sense of all those devices, whether they be IT, OT, or IoT devices, no matter where they are, in the cloud, on-premise, in a remote, or, or what have you. Oh, I should also mention that there's an integration between Lima Charlie and Run Zero. So you can use Run Zero to find all of your endpoints that are missing uh, Lima Charlie to maximize your EDR coverage, right? So Run Zero tells you everything that you have. And then in Lima Charlie, you can say you can see where are all the Lima Charlie agents deployed. And then you can say, oh, here are all the endpoints that are missing Lima Charlie that I want to deploy Lima Charlie onto. So it's a, it's a fantastic use case for anybody that's trying to maximize their EDR coverage. Of course, Lima Charlie does more, but you know, that's one great <laughs> use case.
0: Yeah, no, uh, we really got to watch that one because people always just think we do EDR, which is one of the core capabilities we have. But it's, uh, again, yeah, much bigger than that. Yeah, so Run Zero is a really interesting product that I love for a number of reasons, one of which being that you use a product-led approach mm-hmm. uh, where users can sign up and try the product without needing to talk to anybody if they don't want to. And then you have a free tier that is more than enough for anybody to play around with in a lab or track all their stuff at home you know we have our own reasons for taking this approach but i'm curious why you folks decided to take this approach
1: yeah yeah so our our starter edition is what we call it which is which is free forever you can discover up to up to 256 assets in your inventory which is more than most people's home networks right i i find that most people at in the home they have 20 to 30 different devices so 256 is is way more than you need so this is going to sound really corny but we care about improving security for everybody, even smaller organizations, right? This is this is this was more of a norm back in the day, I feel like, right? Because back in the day, it seemed to me like everybody who was working as a security professional started out with a professional interest in hacking, right? Like yeah. that's how we all sort of grew up. And more and more, I'm seeing people join cybersecurity for other reasons, you know, in- including for monetary reasons. I've even seen people who used to work in finance, pivot directly into cybersecurity. <laughs> and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, right? People from all walks of life should have access to the industry, but it does mean there's this shift in the industry towards innovations that lead to high revenues that, that fuel these like rocket ship uh, growth startups. And one of the reasons that I joined Runzer is because the leadership had this origin story that was grounded in the early days. And, and they really believe in bringing everybody along for the ride. And so, you know, we have this starter edition that is available to anybody who wants it. No credit card or anything like that. You sign up with your, your Gmail account even. And you have this, you know, great tool that you can use for whatever purpose. If you're a university researcher or if you just want to tinker with it in your in your own home.
0: Very cool. I love that concept of security for everybody, because I do believe, you know, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So, mm-hmm. if we can bring, you know, that rising tide raises all boats, or however you want to say it, I think it's a, it's a great philosophy, and great to hear that's what you guys are doing. Absolutely. Along with your day job, you're also one of the organizers of B-Sides NYC. Can you tell us a little bit about B-Sides NYC, how big it is, and anything that makes it unique?
1: Yeah, so I'm sure most of this audience is familiar with the B-Sides conferences, which are Regional community-driven conferences that are focused around cybersecurity. Right, so you have your RSA's and your your black hats, and those are more like trade shows. But B sides are focused on education and exchange of knowledge within the community. And the the big ones of course, cor- of course, are B sides San Francisco, B sides Las Vegas, and B sides Austin. B sites New York City happens to be the one in New York, and it ran in two thousand sixteen, and it ran in two thousand eighteen. And like many of the smaller conferences, it was a casualty of the pandemic. And I jumped in to reorganize it this year, 2023. Well, the planning, of course, started last year in 2022, but I reorganized it to bring it back for 2023. It's the first one. We're, uh, first time we're back. And I'm happy to say that we had 127 submissions for 21 speaking slots. So that that made our acceptance rate 17%, which is Pretty pretty rock solid. And the conference was in April, and it went very well. We had close to 800 check-ins, wow. which was even more than the event in 2018. And this also effectively makes, B-sides New York City, the top one or two conferences in New York, security conferences in New York, in terms of number of attendees.
0: No big conferences in New York. I'm surprised.
1: You know, it's it's an issue of space. It's an issue of space. Like that, we are so low on space that you know either you have to fork out a huge chunk of change to get a large convention uh, space like like Jacob Javits Center or something like that, or you have to rely on donations from institutions that have a lot of space, which basically just means universities. But if, if you don't if you don't go through either of those routes, you're basically you're at you're at a bar or or something like that.
0: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I never would have thought of that, but that's uh, makes a ton of sense. And what does that commitment look like for you? Uh, I imagine it's not paid, and how does it all come together?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely not paid. Uh, I've, I've heard of some of the larger B sites providing stipends to some of the organizers, but we're 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 not one of those. So, um, organizing a conference like this runs in two, two phases. There's the early phase where you are bootstrapping the conference. You, as the organizer, end up doing a lot of the work yourself, but this tends to be okay because there isn't a whole lot to, that needs to be done right then and there in that early phase. Right. And then there's this later phase where things get really busy. Right. And, th- but the thing is, it is in this later phase where a lot of volunteers start raising their hands to dedicate their time, right? And I think when a conference gets scaled up to some sort of critical mass, like a DEFCON or a Shmoocon, you know, they, or maybe one of the bigger B-sides, it might be a little bit different, but as I'm speaking with the organizers for some of the other newer B-sides, this seems, seems to be the general trend. There's this early phase, and then there's this later phase. And as far as time commitment goes, I do need to thank the the management chain at my company Run Zero. They're really supportive of me in this effort, uh, because they also care about the security community and giving back and and leading up to the conference, I, I do have a lot of conference related meetings and I, I during working hours and I take off from work to, to work on the conference. And perhaps even more importantly, is much thanks goes to my wife, who's who's super supportive of Of me working on the conference as well.
0: Yeah, it's great to have a good support system. And I think with all sorts of things that you start from nothing, you have to just kind of have faith that it's going to all come together because uh, it usually does. And uh, at the beginning, there's no way of knowing. So it's uh, it's a leap of
1: faith. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of touch and go (laughs) leading up to the conference.
0: So with all the guests we have on the show, I'd like to deep dive a topic that touches on their expertise. Uh, And one of the things we came up with that I thought would be great to chat about is some tips, tricks, and pointers for people submitting talks uh, or proposals to conferences. Where does your experience with this topic hail from? Is it your involvement in B-Sides NYC, or does the rabbit
1: hole go deeper? Yeah, so, you know, I've been attending security conferences since the late 90s, pre-Y2K, dating myself here. I, I think my first DEF CON was like DEF CON 8 or 9. Uh, one of those, I forget. I don't even have the the, the tickets or the badges anymore. But, um, so I was going to undergrad in Los Angeles at the time, so so getting to Las Vegas was on a shoestring budget was, wasn't was all that difficult. Um, I have been doing more of my own speaking at conferences recently as well. So this year I spoke at B-Side San Diego and B-Side Salt Lake City. I'm also going to be speaking at B-Size Las Vegas very soon. Very excited about that. But the perspective that I got from organizing, right, the the B-Size New York City perspective is very interesting because now I'm seeing things from the other side and watching how decisions are made about which talks are selected and which talks are not selected. Now that makes a lot of sense.
0: So let's assume I'm just getting started in the industry, and I have a lot of ideas. I want to get out there, share those ideas with the community, and present at uh, some conferences. Where do I even start?
1: I, th- I think that very last word that you said is is the key word. Start, right? You have to take the initiative. The people who are organizing these conferences are volunteers. They have regular day jobs, and they have families that take precedence, and. Very few of these community conferences have the ability to launch this major marketing campaign to let you know that they're calling for papers, right? You need to go find them, right? But the thing is, there are really good resources for this, right? So info, infosec, uh, infosec-conferences.com is one. cfptime.org is uh, another really good one. And then if you go to, to the securityb com homepage, from there you can link to all the B-sides uh, through, throughout the world. Uh, so multiple ways for you to find out about conferences, B size or non B size conferences, uh, through various uh, resources on the internet for sure. You can also follow on Mastodon and uh, Twitter if you're still using Twitter. You can you can <laughs> follow on on those social platforms for the conferences that you're most interested in. They typically have one or the other or both handles on on those 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 two platforms. Some some are even on LinkedIn as well. You should also think about whether or not your talk has a niche focus, right? Even more niche than cybersecurity. So what I'm saying here is, so there are entire conferences that are dedicated to just threat intelligence, for example, right? And and Grace Chi from Pulse Dive, she just published a list just for threat intel conferences on her, on her blog. So we'll we'll drop a link for that as well. There are also conferences that are just for application security, right? So if you are... If you have a topic that is in that niche, you should also be looking for those specific conferences as well to see if you can get in over there.
0: Okay, so now I know what conferences line up with the information I want to share. They have an open call for papers or CFP, and I want to submit something. What's next?
1: Yeah, so I highly recommend, I highly, highly recommend that you spend time on your abstract and your title, right? So I'm going to go back to what I said, something that I said earlier. Organizers are almost always volunteers. If your abstract is cryptic, the CFP selection committee, the call for papers selection committee, is not going to take the time to figure out what you mean or why your talk is interesting. All right, I'll I'll give you this example, right? So for the last B-Size New York City, somebody submitted a talk where the abstract was essentially point one. Even bots face security threats. Okay. Point two, bots have to run somewhere on some sort of compute platform. Okay. Point three, good implementation practices are not standardized. Right. So from this abstract, you can tell it has something to do with bots, but you can tell very little else. There's a lot that can be said about bots, but it's hard to tell what this author was focusing on about bots. There's very, there's also very little indication as to why the audience should care. Like, are there lessons to be learned about bots? Are there techniques that the audience will be able to try at home? Are there tools that the audience might be able to use at their jobs? You're not getting that from this abstract. And the selection committee is not going to take the time to go figure that out. They're just going to move on to the next one.
0: Yeah, something like that bots have these vulnerabilities. There's no standard protocols. Here's 10 ways that you can improve your posture and make sure that there's no vulnerabilities introduced through your use of ChatGPT or something like that.
1: That, 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 is, that is far more interesting as an abstract. <laughs> and, you know, you, right, right you know, off top of mind for you. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, could, I could
0: probably even do better with a bit of time, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like spend
1: yeah. time on the abstract, spend time on the title, make it better, make, make it easier for everybody. Right, And the thing is, if you're applying to multiple conferences, you could just copy and paste afterwards. Yeah. So the first submission, just really take the time. And the second one, maybe, maybe refine it a little bit. And by the third and fourth one, you're just copying and pasting.
0: So aside from the lack of verbosity and the title and abstract, are there absolute don'ts I should be aware of? Are there things in CFP proposals that will ensure nobody ever gives it more than a cursory glance? I know whenever I see a resume with a Hotmail address, I have some bias that kicks in.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, yes, I too <laughs> have some reservations <laughs> when I see a hotmail address, but uh, in terms of, of submitting papers, I think two, two issues come to mind immediately. So the first one is don't form your talk around shaming anyone, right? These conferences are meant to be venues for open exchanges of ideas, right? Criticism for improvement is fine, right? Challenging others to do better is fine. Speaking with the express purpose of placing blame on others for problems in the industry, that is not really helpful. Okay. So that's number one. Number two is avoid doing a sales pitch embedded in your presentation or your workshop. Uh, serious. And, and, and you know, you, you laugh, but the thing is, unfortunately we are seeing more and more of this at conferences, right? And I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you one example. A vendor had approached uh, the conference. They approached me to do a workshop or, or a village at b size in New York City. And they described it as a great way for people to learn how to do threat hunting. And when I dug into this a little bit deeper, it was clear that the workshop was going to be conducted on their commercial platform. There was no open source downloadable version. There was no community edition. There was no free forever version. So essentially it was like a hands-on sales pitch, as far as I could tell, Right. Here's the thing. If your goal is to bring awareness to your product, then you should really reconsider why you even want to be at a community conference, right? What you want to do works really well for trade shows like Black Hat, right? But it's going to fall flat at a community conference. So for b size New York City, 15% of our attendees were students, people who are not going to be able to afford your enterprise security solution. So, if your presentation walks them through methodologies or techniques or tools that they can't use at home, that's not a good fit for us, right? It is true that many of the attendees are also security directors and CISOs and, 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 and titles like this, but they're not there to be sold to. They get enough of that at RSA, and I'm sure they would also agree with me that it's important to make sure that the students and early in career folks have access to the ideas and, and tools being presented. So please don't try and hide your sales pitch in the presentation. We're, we're going to know. And even if you sort of like sneak past us, I mean, we're going to remember.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a problem. I And I, you know, part of me is sympathetic to people trying to, you know, get out there and get seen, but there's just, there's ways to go about it. And I think you have to have a longer vision. In your head, than sort of a, sh- a short-term gain, where you compromise your reputation just to get a f- few more demos in, like you were saying, hundred percent, yeah. Is it ever a good idea to try and reach out to organizers outside of official channels? Stuff like trying to connect on LinkedIn or tracking down their personal email address.
1: <laughs> um, please don't do that. <laughs> uh, so that that is that just makes you seem creepy or annoying or or both, right? Uh, I, I'm going to repeat this. The people who organize these conferences are volunteers. They have regular day jobs and families. They have pre-programmed interrupts in their lives, right? You introducing this out-of-band interrupt will only result in undefined behavior. I think the only time that I've ever broken this rule, when I was accepted to a talk, was um, I, I got the email saying I was accepted and I had to respond to the email uh, confirming my attendance. And when I respond to the email, it bounced back due to an email server misconfiguration on their side. So I figured the organizer probably wanted to know. So I tracked him down personally on LinkedIn and he thanked me and then we, we we moved on. Now, with all that being said, if you want to connect with the organizer on LinkedIn, just to connect, just to network, not because you're trying to get an answer about a question that they hadn't, haven't had time to answer yet. That's a different story, right? For the record, everybody's welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn and Mastodon. I I still have Twitter, too, if anybody still uh, wants to connect with me there. Um, Happy to connect. But if there's a question about a CFP, like, did I get accepted, yes or no? Like, just go through the proper channels, because it's not really helping anybody for you to try and go out of band.
0: Yeah, and it kind of comes along with the same feelings as the – people trying to submit to do sales pitches like you were saying mm, mm. so let's say i get accepted to talk somewhere now i have to put on an actual talk uh build a deck what tips do you have here is there a general structure or format that's common
1: yeah i i would say number one tip here is avoid walls of text right so we as a society for better or for worse we don't really read anymore right uh, if you're going to make the audience read, they are going to get bored, right? There's the saying, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Well, a video is worth a thousand pictures. A demo is worth a thousand videos, right? You can also start thinking outside of your presentation, right? Engage the audience. You can get creative about this. So uh, I had this one speaker, Eric Olson, who was talking about uh, the the mess of metrics. Like, what does it mean? What does MTTD mean? And what does MTTR mean? He was going through about, you know, how there's no standardization on, on the language we use in cybersecurity. During his talk, he would ask the audience members questions. And when they got it right, he would give them a dollar. It's super <laughs> low investment to yeah. so get people really focused on your talk track. So that was, so start thinking about that. Avoid walls of text, but also thinking about how you can engage with your audience outside of the presentation itself.
0: Very cool. I love that idea. Is it ever a good idea to use memes in your talk?
1: Well, so here's the thing. A meme will not fix a bad talk. A meme will not ruin a good talk either, right? So the question is, is that meme contributing to your message in a meaningful way, right? The great thing about memes is they can communicate a feeling very succinctly, right? Um, for example, I can give you a very long-winded explanation about how I'm the situation where nearly every initiative is appearing to fail catastrophically and, and compounding each other's failures. And at the same time, everybody in the organization appears to be oblivious to the severity of the situation and allowing the, the issue to fester with no intention of remediating. Do you feel me yet, Christopher? Or, or, how about this? How would I just show you a meme of that dog with that coffee cup sitting in that fiery room <laughs> saying this is fine, right? So just by my verbal description, you know which meme I mean. Yeah. And and you grok the emotion that I want to communicate, right? So memes are are I'm going to get a little bit jungian here. Memes are a great as a way of um, communicating shared symbols in our society, right? The collective conscious, if you will, yes. as opposed to unconscious. So when appropriate they are great to use in your presentation and often provide this, this break of levity in an otherwise dense presentation full of, you know, PCAPs or, or, or code, right? Now the key word here is appropriate, right? The meme needs to fit your talk track. If it's forced, then it's not funny anymore. And you just seem like that really awkward person that's trying to be funny when they're not right. You also want a meme that is universally understood as much as possible. So our industry is very international, right? So you got to think about: will somebody from outside of North America understand that meme, right? The industry also spans a really large age range, so you got to think: will somebody older than you understand the meme? Will somebody younger than you understand that meme? So for me personally, I probably wouldn't use the "All your base are belong to us" meme anymore because I, I don't know if the younger folks uh, remember that,
0: right? Yeah, that's a interesting cultural. Phenomenon. And I really like the way that you piece that answer together because uh, I have seen the unfunny memes make things awkward and low. But I also agree with you about conveying a very specific emotion very quickly and easily in a way that might even get a laugh, right?
1: When it works, it works so well. Yeah, that's right. You and just when it, it doesn't, it's
0: like, oh, God, <laughs> cringe. Yeah. So public speaking can be difficult. Uh, especially daunting if you've never done it in a professional setting before. Any advice for people getting ready to do this for the first time?
1: I feel like I'm like a good person to ask about this because I used to be super awkward when speaking to just even another human being, right? And now I just ramble on on podcasts here. Public speaking is, I have to say, a wonderful investment in your career. If your company offers presentation training, absolutely take it. That was my first step right? Taking a class is a lot easier than trying to bootstrap this, this capability, right? I've taken enough classes that my last instructor told me that the next step for me were either improv comedy classes or joining community theater. And so far I've done neither, but I, I keep thinking about it. If your company does not offer any sort of presentation training, then try Toastmasters, right? It's going to be more work on you in terms of initiative, but you'll ultimately get to the same result. I think perhaps the most important thing when trying to get better about presentation is to have a growth mindset, seek out feedback, accept the feedback, think about the feedback, try and incorporate the feedback. Probably the two worst things that you can do are get discouraged or to give up and get defensive and, and reject the feedback. So B Size Las Vegas has this great speaker mentorship program and I got assigned uh, a person to to help me with my presentation, even though I've had presentation training in the past. I didn't say no. I didn't say, I don't need that. I'm like, you're going to give me free presentation feedback? Great. Let's do it. And like, I've, So always embrace any opportunity to help you improve in, in your presentation skills.
0: Oh, that's some great advice. I've thought about doing Toastmasters before, but I really like the idea of improv comedy. I'm going to see if there's any of that running in my community here.
1: It, it it apparently is like the pinnacle of your capability to to present and just think on your feet and think about how you're you're showing up to the crowd. So yes.
0: So this has been great. I have one more question for you. It's the one that I ask of everybody on the show. It can be as wide or narrow as you want. It doesn't even have to be related to cybersecurity. Do you have any predictions for the future?
1: So I'm generally pessimistic, so I'm going to share with you a fear that I have about where we're going with with cybersecurity here. Dun-dun-dun. Yeah. And I, I could be completely off-base. In fact, I'd, I would like to be wrong. But I fear this convergence towards homogeneous defense, right? So I'll explain what I mean by that. So security solutions are became, becoming more commonplace. This is partly due to such security attacks always being on the rise, right? The adversaries expanded their scope beyond governments and and large enterprises. Now they're also attacking small companies, schools, OT environments, and things like this. And this has been happening for quite some time. So that's not new. And even though it's not new, it's still a driver for, for this homogeneous defense that I'm talking about here. The other driver is this continuing rise of requirements for security solutions. Uh, I'm not talking about just like regulations but also you know CISA has recently been releasing new binding operating directives like BOD2301 BOD2302 which only apply to federal civilian agencies but a lot of other organizations sort of take on that those uh, directives as something they should be following too and in the private sector we're seeing uh more and more cyber insurance becoming a reason why people or organizations adopt security solutions. Okay. There could be a time, this is my fear. There could be a time when every organization beyond a certain size. uh, Well, this is not the fear, but there could be a time when every security organization beyond a certain size is required to have a certain level of security. My fear is that this second driver will favor larger companies, larger vendors, I should say. And if that happens, we may end up seeing a more homogeneous defense where a significant number of organizations have the same password manager or the same EDR or the same, you know, take your pick of security solution. And, and that's not a good thing, right? You know, every species thrives on genetic diversity. And in the same way, so to analogize here, I feel like organizations can thrive on, you know, a diversity of security solutions. If we get to a point where everybody is buying their security solutions from a single vendor or very few vendors, what does that world look like, not just for defense, but to the adversary? like How much easier does it get for them? Like I said, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope it never comes to this, but it is something that I think about uh, when it comes to the future for, for where we're going in terms of cybersecurity.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never had anybody bring that up specifically, but I agree. I think these big vendors probably have very good defenses, but if you look at something like SolarWinds, where, mm-hmm. you know, a motivated actor, an APT, has the resources to put in and, and figure out a way through, the resulting uh, number of attacks that are possible out of that is, is exponential compared to a regular breach.
1: Absolutely. Very good example.
0: Well, Oxley, I really appreciate having you on here. I think it was a lot of great information for our listeners, and uh, hopefully somebody will reach out to me at some point down the road and tell me all about the first talk they gave
1: at a conference and how this helped them. That would be awesome. Oh, do let me know, please. Oh, that would be awesome.
0: I most certainly will. In fact, we might have to have you back on when that happens.
1: <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. No, that would be great. Awesome. Awesome.
0: Okay, take care, sir. All right. And that concludes episode number 47 of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie Community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.